This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy there for bringing us through to 11 o'clock in the studio with or 11 plus a little bit, I might say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're cruel. Uh, but science is about measurement, and we sure as hell know how to measure the time here at the radio station. Dr. Jen, good morning. Good morning. What a glorious day. Oh, Can you believe it? I this know. is Melbourne at its best. Yeah, freezing cold morning. Yeah. Warming up to a great day. Yeah. That's, that's what it's all about. Glory. It was cold last night. We went to an outdoor mm. movie at the Oval just around the corner from our house, and I'm glad I packed some blankets. Let me tell you, it was cold. Yeah, I, I was torn because I wanted to get my telescope out because it was just a beautiful night, yeah. but then I wanted to watch the film Interstellar, <laughs> which I have to Can't say you I, multitask? I really enjoyed. Yes. No, I really enjoyed it. It was, it was, it was good. It was, really, it was really well done. And one good. of those three-hour films that didn't feel like three hours. Oh, well, they're which, uh, rare. They are rare. <laughs> <Really> rare. <laughs> In fact, I would say most hour-and-a-half films feel like three hours. Yeah. These days. So, yes, yes, indeed. Dr. Catherine, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Thank you. It's great to be here today. Yeah, yeah you've been trying to outstep me on the Fitbit all week. I have been. I've uh, been for a run this morning to try and catch up. And, but uh, you're no comparison to Dr. Jen and her crazy no, Fitbit I've heard. antics. <laughs> I'm leaving you guys for dead. You know what I want to do, though, Dr. Jen? I'm going to do a, sh- a simple calculation later in the show where I'm going to convert my height and my number of steps to distance and then do it for you two because I've got a foot on both of you and I'm pretty sure we're traveling the same distance. You're just taking more steps. Yeah, but yeah. We're t- yeah, but isn't isn't energy related to steps taken? Sorry, in the physics energy. sense, work <laughs> is force <laughs> times displacement, oh. and unfortunately, your displacement is not exceeding mine. So, you well, physicists, <laughs> you're such nerds. I'm wondering if we should get some treadmills in the studio and uh, walk during the show for an hour and see how many steps we yeah. get. A bit of a Let's challenge one time. I have Let's enough trouble it. pushing the buttons and talking. <laughs> Dr. Ray, good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. I'm, I'm all excited. I found the height adjustment on the microphone. <laughs> been seven years so uh, i'm having a good show so far she's a tear folks if you've ever wondered we do um we do check them before they come onto the show that they do actually have phds and uh i think ray well he got his in the united states i'm not sure what that means yeah. <laughs> anyway let's jump into some news uh dr jen stepmaster what have you got I'm not going to talk about stepping just Good. to make you feel better. No, I wanted to talk about something that really made big news this week um, from a team at the University of Queensland, the Queensland Brain Institute. And you know how we get really frustrated how often the word breakthrough is used oh, yeah. when it comes to research? Yeah. It really irks me and so many people I know. But this week some research came out that actually people were genuinely thinking might be worthy of the name breakthrough. So well, I thought we'd what about talk Ray's about it. thing with the microphone? microphone. That's a break, breakthrough. Well, that was clearly a breakthrough. <laughs> They have, they have different microphones in the U.S., so that they, you know they need to adjust, and that's why the PhD doesn't transfer. clockwise, counterclockwise. Is that <laughs> no, really no, it's not like the toilet thing from the different hemispheres. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more correctly, it's a breakthrough for him. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's be let's get our scales now. correct. Anyway, here. going back. So dementia, Alzheimer's, we know mm. massive effect, uh, massive. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Impact on Impact. the community. Thank you very much. And it's yep, lucky no I'm problem. talking so well today, isn't it? So a new case every four seconds at the world in the moment. They wow. reckon there's going to be 135 million cases of dementia by 2050. And this week, some research was published in the uh, journal Science Translational Medicine, which showed that a non-invasive ultrasound 
technique can be used to treat Alzheimer's in mice. So let's be very clear at the moment this research has only been done in mice, Mm -hmm. but it was able to restore the memory of 75% of these mice that were um, afflicted by the mouse equivalent, I guess, of Alzheimer's. So this is very different. It's non-invasive. We're not talking drugs. We're not talking something that does any damage to the surrounding um, areas of the brain. So we know that Alzheimer's is caused by what's called amyloid plaques, which are basically these kind of sticky proteins that stick between the nerve cells in the brain and they cause memory loss and decline, you know, a general decline in brain function. And so there's this type of ultrasound. So we're not talking the ultrasound that you might have if you're going to go and try and find out if, you know, you've pulled a hammy or you you know go and have a look at your baby it's a different type of ultrasound it's called focused therapeutic ultrasound and basically it sends these sound waves into the brain tissue and it kind of just gets everything to jiggle around enough i know that sounds very scientific but these sound waves basically prompt cells that can get rid of waste to go in and do their job and actually get rid of these plaques these cells are called microglia glial cells or glila cells maybe Anyway, so they go to the right place and clear out these protein clumps. And as I said, it fully restored the memory of 75% of the mice in these trials with no damage whatsoever to the surrounding brain tissue. So they got these mice to do mazes. They tested them whether they could recognise new objects. They um, got them to remember places they should avoid. So this is quite a remarkable discovery because it's, as I said, non-invasive, no drugs. If Mm. this could be scaled up, and it's a very big if, it's very early days. So we're talking very small brains it's only been tested on mice the plan is to move up to sheep next and hopefully human trials starting in about 2017 but it could be a very important discovery and i think this is i mean to coming back to your your first point around the word breakthrough Mm. i think we have to be very careful here because this is this is i would not consider this a breakthrough this is incredibly interesting initial phase research and nothing more and it may be that the second you try a larger animal with a larger brain with larger amounts of this material that's causing the problem sorry just doesn't work so exactly you know it's it's i always put in that let's get excited because this is great work but when your relative is suffering from this condition park that on a separate street to this information because it's it's a long way between the two. It's a very long yeah. way. And the other thing to be aware of, in addition to all of that, is that there's another um, type of protein called a tau protein, which basically kind of tangles up tubules in the brain and means they can't transport nutrients anymore. That's equally responsible for Alzheimer's, mm. and we have no idea whether this type of ultrasound have, has any effect whatsoever yet on that mm. type of protein. So I totally agree. It's really hard when people come out and say, this is a breakthrough, because we, we don't know that yet it's yeah. really well, it's a breakthrough days. for the mice it is but that's about it it is yeah. exactly yeah. dr jen the glial cells i remember i think last year we talked about the researchers had discovered what happens in your brain when you sleep glial cells actually uh contract less and allow a lot more flow out and mm-hmm. and i guess that's just illustrative we're still wor- learning what the functions are for human glial cells now so mm. integrating that piece of knowledge with this still it seems like it's there's a lot more work to do Oh, definitely. Mm. And that's, you know, isn't that what science is all about? That's why we get so excited. Mm. We're finding out these new things and it's putting all the little pieces of the puzzle together. Yep. And often these really simple techniques, you know, have a lot of, a lot of merit. Mm. And, exactly. and as you say, non-invasive, non, non-drug based, not, you know, just, um, physical changes yep. to activity. 
Let's hope it doesn't go the same way as the stressed um, stem cell work from yep. a couple of years ago, which turned out to be bogus. So, mm. I mean, this obviously is not in the same group, but let's hope it has a lot more potential. So, mm. Mm. so watch this space. Indeed. Let's see what happens. Indeed. Dr. Catherine. Uh, following along the neurosciences theme, I also have some research this week um, looking at uh, brain diseases. So there was some fascinating research that came from the University of California and published in Current Biology. And this research was looking at the way we could change the neurochemical balance in your brain to change your willingness to engage in pro-social behaviours. So that for an example of that is um, you know, dividing resources fairly and equally amongst other people. So with this study, what they did, it was a randomised control trial which gave some people a, a tablet which included a, a type of drug called telcopone which is um, used in the disease, Parkinson's disease, and the other people received a placebo tablet, so it was a pretend tablet which didn't have this, um, this drug. Now what this drug does is it changes the way dopamine works in the brain, it prolongs the effect of dopamine. And we understand that dopamine is very important. It's a chemical um, or a neurotransmitter in the brain and it acts in the section of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for these pre-social behaviours. So the, the real interesting finding out of this research was that the people who were given this drug and changed their dopamine uh, levels and changed the chemical balance in their brain, they were actually willing to engage, sort of divide their resources fairly with other people and, and sort of be more averse to inequality. Can I say we should put this in the drinking water? Water. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very interesting. I mean, previously we thought this was a stable characteristic, yeah. sort of fair-mindedness, but this has challenged that thought. Wow. I mean, that's amazing if you could actually... I mean, you know, you'd have to be a very... I'm not sure if it's linked to honesty, but if you're honest enough to say, look, I really don't give a shit about my fellow man, <laughs> and you rock up to your GP and say, you know, I, I need something for it, <laughs> and it's possible you could actually be treated for not giving a crap. So we all have it in us to be incredibly kind and lovely then. It's just that, you know... Different some chemical of us, levels. Yeah, might mm. need a bit of a chemical boost. I, I just see a spike around after New Year's. Oh, I want to be a better person yeah. this year. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a spike in ads <laughs> to sell the stuff. Yeah, you know, like the fitness ads. So, mm. and, and this finding does have implications for health research and particularly those um, the mental illness diseases such mm. as schizophrenia and addiction where some of the side effects of those diseases are you know, social functions and, and these types of characteristics. So potentially in the diagnosis and assessment and also in the treatment of those conditions, this yeah. is a one small step forward. Yeah, and, and just from the point of view of understanding why people are different, why, yeah. you know, we often have trouble, for those of us who are more altruistic in our approach to life, you know, you have trouble understanding how some people can mm-hmm. act in a certain way. Well, well maybe... Yeah, I want to put it down to being assholes, but, but, but maybe. <laughs> Why did you look a, at me just then? <laughs> for approval, because um, oh, I was okay. about to swear on air, and I try oh. not to do it. And you always give me a, a stink eye um, <laughs> when I do that. So, but it could be something chemical. So, yeah, very. Gee, that's interesting. I'll have to keep an eye on that one, Doctor Ray. Uh, Dr. Shane, I, uh, I have to go for something that's out of this world. Well, actually, it was out of this world, and now it's on this world. Uh, we're talking about uh, a discovery about a quasi-crystal in a meteorite. And so mm-hmm. researchers from both Italy and uh, Princeton University have found that um, in a little tiny grain of meteorite, they discovered a quasi-crystal. Now, a quasi-crystal, if you don't remember, Dr. Shane, is a very interesting form of matter that was ki- quite controversial when it was discovered in the uh, early 80s. Uh, we all know crystal structures of materials 
Um, you might be familiar with sodium chloride table salt. It has kind of a how the atoms assemble in a unit cell is a square and it replicates. And if you've ever seen a high resolution picture of sodium chloride under a microscope or even a fancier microscope, they always look like little cubes. Well, quasi crystals are, are quite a conundrum for chemists and physicists because they have regular order but they're not periodic, and but there's still a crystalline material. And there was quite a lot of debate when they were discovered. Uh, Dan Shankman, who's actually credited with the discovery and won the Nobel Prize in 2011, when he first suggested this, the director of the institute he was working at handed him a textbook on crystals and said, find it in there. It's not there. You should know hmm. better. I mean, it's very, it was very <laughs> controversial. And one of the reasons is you don't find these things in nature. You can make them in a lab. Well, there've been, but there've been two instances of finding it in nature, but as it turns out, they're both from meteorites. Uh, and the most That's recent cool. discovery was, um, from, uh, where they dug up some clay in the Russian mountains in 2011 and finally got through the analysis on it. And they just published it in scientific reports where they have a, a very interesting, quasi-crystal, and why it's odd is not just, oh, it has the right structure and it's periodic and you've finally seen something in nature, but you had to find it on a meteorite. And it, it's actually made up of a, a, a mixture of metals, so it's an alloy. It's aluminum. I actually <laughs> found this interesting. Aluminium, thank you. Uh, <laughs> nickel and iron. And the previous one was aluminum or aluminium, copper and iron. And in both instances, why you would normally never see these things in nature the way we think of it is there's no oxygen bound to them. Mm-hmm. So it had to be formed in a place that was a very high temperature, very high pressure, and very little oxygen in the environment. Thus, you know, space Which comes to doesn't mind. doesn't really happen yeah. here so much. So mm-hmm. much. But, uh, I mean, they don't know if they, these things formed on impact and things, but it's just bizarre. They found it in a meteorite. And then they said, oh, we found this one in 2011. It's actually the same meteorite from 2009, but that meteorite was found in a museum in Italy. And, and <laughs> when they say meteorite, I looked up the pictures. They're like grains that are two yeah, millimeters. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. we looked at grain 126 versus grain, you know, they found seven or eight grains of this meteorite. And, and do you know how they find meteorites? They go to the Russian mountain. They dig up a bunch of clay and pan for meteorite the same way you pan for gold. Wow. That cool. was just bizarre. Yeah. It was really amazing that you could find these things and they knew where to look. It's extraordinary stuff. Interesting stuff in space. Well, speaking of space, uh, I've just been following this, so I thought I'd give people a quick update. The Mars One program, is, uh, they've had a few hiccups. <laughs> oh, so yeah. if you haven't been uh, following folks, this is the uh, crazy idea of sending a few people to Mars, originally as part of a reality TV show, but apparently That's that part has canned. been canned. <laughs> Although they are looking at alternative um, uh, sort of programming options now. So there's a hundred people who've, um, you know, ticked the box and, well, a lot more than a hundred actually. Oh, there were put their name down. Hundreds thousands of thousands. Of that, yeah. Yeah. And they picked a hundred and it was apparently a very rigorous process, um, according to Mars One. Um, but, uh, a guy named Joseph Roche, who's a physicist at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland, has come out and made some pretty full on claims about the, the choices and how they go through the process and how they earn points. And he's related it to how much paraphernalia and crap you buy off this company. Yeah. He's now, basically said the more money you give, yeah. the more likely you are to get to go, which yeah. isn't quite what Mars One said it would yeah. be about. Although I would say there's quite a few celebrities with a lot of money that I would love to, send to get off this Earth. Earth. Justin Bieber, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> um, I could be. But uh, anyway, so it's, and of course, Mars One would come back and say, no, no, that's outrageous. Everyone, you know, so it's, it's interesting, I think, that the wheels are falling off, or should I say the booster rockets are mm. falling off this program before it's even been started. And the real question of 
you know, whether it's technically feasible, still up in the air. So mm. we'll keep you posted on Mars One, folks. Um, I put Dr. Jen's name down, but she got rejected. Yeah. What can you do? <laughs> We're going to play you a quick track, and then we'll be crossing live to the University of Maine in uh, the United States of America, another part of the planet, uh, to talk about science education, all things great. We'll be back in just a moment. Three. Uh, we're back. You're listening to Einstein the Gogo on Three Triple R, folks, and you probably heard my voice slightly over that track as we were setting up our international interview. Uh, the track you just heard was uh, by O oh Mercy called Sandy. Now we do have uh, on the line now. Hopefully, if the Skype gods are with us, Dr. Michelle Smith, who's from the School of Botany and Ecology at the University of Maine in the United States. Michelle, can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? We can. Fabulous. Now we Wonderful. Had, yeah. We, we had you... My headphones are playing weird buggers from me this morning, but um, we actually had you on um, the show last year, and we initiated the sort of discussion about science education, what was happening there, and some of the interesting things. And I was hoping you could start off by just giving us a bit of an update of where things are from your perspective over there in the U.S., yeah, so, well, in my lab in particular, we've been continuing to get some more information about how university faculty are teaching their science classes. And at the University of Maine, what we've been doing is having middle and high school teachers come in, and we've now observed 172 different science, engineering, and mathematics classes across the University of Maine. And we've been able to get an interesting read on how the instructors and the students are spending their time in these various science and mathematics classes that's that's a lot of classes to uh to so this you're sitting through part of them all of them yeah so we have the teachers sit through two classes a semester and rate what's going on so they're looking at how people are spending their time and then we're using the information and giving it back to the faculty so they can see how they're spending their time while they're teaching and then also using it to design some professional development so for example we found that faculty who were teaching larger enrollment classes so classes that had hundreds of students were not using as many active teaching techniques as faculty who were teaching smaller classes so we started to target some professional development development um, directly at how you can encourage active learning in your large enrollment courses. So can you give us an example, Michelle, of what you mean by active learning there? It's um, it's something, yeah. that, I mean, it's a term that we all use, but I just want to make sure that everyone's aware of exactly what that, that means. Sure. So it's often contrasted with traditional lecturing. So what we kind of think of when we think of university science and math classes, where students would go, they would sit and listen to an instructor talking and they would be taking notes the whole time. But what we found by looking at studies across all different types of disciplines, different environments, is that students learn a lot more if their minds are on, if they're solving problems, thinking about things in the classroom. So people have done all kinds of things to encourage active learning. One popular thing over here in the United States is that students will bring a clicker device. So this is a remote control device that has the letters A, B, C, D, and E on it. And then throughout the class period, the instructor will pose multiple choice questions and the students will vote in real time um, what they think. But in addition to voting, they also get a chance to talk through the question with their peers. So they're getting a chance to practice communicating science with their peers and thinking about questions in class. It's not just something that happens after class is over. 
Hey Michelle, it's Jen. It's lovely to hear from you. Hi. How you Great going? to hear from you. So you're talking about what the instructors are doing, which is obviously fairly important in a class, so whether they're employing active techniques or not. But your observers, are they watching the students to see how many of them are actually, you know, you can tell by people's faces, I reckon, whether they're engaged or whether they're playing on their smartphones under the desk, you know, that sort of thing. Are you observing the students as well? Michelle. You've got to love the technology. <laughs> uh, hang on, we'll see if we can uh, get it back. Michelle, can I'm you back. hear us? You're back. I'm back. Hey, I did not hear back. anything. I, I'm so sorry. Jen, could you tell me again your question? So I'm interested in whether you're observing the students. You're clearly observing the teachers, so the instructors, for what they're doing and whether they're being um, trying to use active techniques or not. But are you watching the students and trying to get a handle on whether they're actually engaged or whether they're doing stuff on their smartphone under the desk? Oh, you again. We are having a bit of a communication problem here. We'll see if we can reconnect it. But uh, for all our listeners, poor yeah. Michelle keeps disappearing. I don't think it's because my question's horrible. I think it's your question is <laughs> your question is hard. I'm back again. Every yep. time you ask it, it cuts out. But I think you were asking about if we're observing the students as exactly. well as the instructors. Exactly. Great. So yes, in fact, half of the codes that we're looking at are what the students are doing and the other half are what the instructors are doing. So we're looking at if the students are taking notes, if they're talking with their neighbor, if they're working individually on a problem. We're noting those things as well. Excellent. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, Dr. Ray. I had a, I had a, a, a comment and a question. Your, your example of the clickers is is, is true. It's, it's fantastic. We teach them. Um, I teach classes of 400, and the clickers just work brilliantly. We've been using them for quite a right. few years. Um, one thing, though, because you've done enough studying on this, is it is it a myth when, when I hear the statement from some lecturers when they say larger classes, it's just harder to do active learning, and so that's why they don't do it, whereas I, I, I'm under the impression there, there are a lot of ideas out there. And, and so you've looked at this. Is it... I think active learning can fit well in a, in a large lecture theater. Is is that the case from what you've seen in your studies? Yes, it's totally the case. So there are a lot of resources out there to help faculty who are teaching large enrollment classes um, integrate active learning. Clickers works great in a large enrollment classroom because you can share a lot of ideas with the students. You know, what we found is that people who teach larger courses often say things like, well, I can't do that because I have too many students. But what we see are great examples of, even though the average score is a little bit lower for a large enrollment courses, the standard deviation number is huge on that. And so we see great examples of people that are doing lots of active learning, even with students in front of them. I have um, colleagues who have done it with 700 people in the room. I've done it with 500 people in the room, and it actually works quite well. Michelle, it's Dr. Catherine here. Um, you mentioned the Hi. clickers. Hi. Uh, you mentioned the clickers, but what about other sort of technologies? Certainly with um, you know the generations coming through now, they're growing up. I know two-year-olds that can use an iPhone and an iPad, and, and there's a big push to use um, social media and, and that sort of technology in teaching. You, could you comment on that, yeah. please? Yeah, so I think clickers are probably headed in the way of the cell phones, so more and more institutions are using their cell phones 
uh, the students are using their cell phones not only to answer multiple choice questions, but to submit text responses in real time. Or even I've seen demonstrations of things where someone might put a picture up, and the students in the classroom are drawing on that picture, maybe identifying a part of the cell or a fault line on a mountain ridge or something like that. So that's um, some uses as well. In addition, I know people have live tweeting in their classroom that can help the there we go. We may have lost Michelle again. Just a, just a comment on that while we're waiting for Michelle to come back. I do mm. all of that stuff in my class. There's an online package that my students just bring in their smartphones or their tablets or whatever, and they either tweet their responses or just go online. And it works really well. So you can have a big group of people, and they're all you know submitting written you know word responses, not just multiple choice actually. So I can say ask you know a very open ended question and get hundreds of responses coming up on the screen in real time. Yeah. It's awesome fun. It's fantastic. Do, do you know the amazing thing about this Skype connection is I spoke to Michelle for 20, 20 minutes before <laughs> yeah. the program. <laughs> and it was absolutely seamless and we didn't have any trouble at all. So I think we, we may have lost her for good, but um, we were hoping to chat to her briefly about um, about whether or not there was any sort of way to arrest um, this, this issue around student, you know, drop-in student numbers. Mm. And I think at some stage when we're able, we will we will talk to her again about that. We'll just, um, yeah, it looks like uh, we're actually, we've dropped offline here at our end. Uh, I'm I'm sure it's because before 20, when you were talking to Michelle before, nobody was live streaming (laughs) Einstein to Gogo and and, and that we're... uh, Well, the thing... thing, Now there's thousands. Yeah, the thing I I absolutely love about this is is the fact that um, Michelle has told her entire family not to watch any movies tonight because because she was going to be doing this. But um, look, we're sort of out of time though anyway. So we will uh, will catch up with Michelle again soon and we'll try and sort out this Skype issue. Next time I might do it from my phone. Yeah, <laughs> but obviously this is a this is an area of significant um, significant interest, and one that we're going to continue to follow up on, folks. So um, we will continue this discussion and have Michelle on three or four times during the year because Dr. Jen and I, in particular, are interested in this issue of science education and mm. the communication of science. We're going to take a short break now for a uh, a track, and we'll be back in just a moment. Three, triple. Uh, there we go. If you're wondering what that track was, folks, it was uh, Love is Deep by Matthew White. Now, we are joined in the studio now, this time live in the studio, as opposed to via score. That damn thing didn't work. Um, we'll work there. Joe McAuliffe is the Victorian State Manager of Engineering Australia. Welcome, Joe. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Look, it's great to have you in. I mean, we're, we're all into... It's funny, we were just talking to Michelle from the US about these sorts of programs that involve active learning and so forth, and and we saw that you've... Um, well, one of the programs you're involved with is this Subs in Schools Technology Challenge. Tell us a bit about that. What What is it? Okay, the Subs in Schools Technology Challenge was a development from Reengineering Australia to further extend our F1 in schools program that we've been running for 11 Mm -hmm. years. That is a global project that's run over 40 countries and has 9 million students participate in that project every year. So we have been approached by the Defence Department Mm -hmm. to turn an F1 car into submarines. The chief scientist spoke to me and uh, Reengineering Australia at the air show two years ago. Since then, we've had discussions with our 
back are the DMO, which mm-hmm. is the Department of Materials Organisation. They have been responsible for this subs in schools program for us to further develop it. What we're looking for is we want engagement of aspiring students to get involved and do exactly what Michelle was talking about previously about mm. creative learning, problem solving in the classroom. And we're doing that at year seven and year 12 level so all the way through secondary school and now we're working back from prep to grade six as well in our programs look it's great it's great to hear you targeting there at year seven because i know i'm being involved in the telescopes in schools program myself and we target the same year level because as we say by the time they get to year eight or year nine you've, you've almost lost them and and the, the disdain and the dislike of science and mathematics and so forth can creep in pretty quickly in high school so you must find uh, getting them at year seven they're pretty enthusiastic and ready to go they are. I've been a teacher in uh, secondary school, TAFE colleges and universities at Victoria University mm-hmm. for many years. And with that 35 years experience, I realise if we don't grab the students when they're young, yeah. uh, we don't get that opportunity. And STEM is our main driver. Mm-hmm. You know, Science, technology, engineering and maths is what we're trying to instil into our students, to engage them, to get involved into this global learning. We are very much on a global learning path. You've heard all of the politicians and everybody in the community, business leaders, talk about we need to work smarter and, mm. well, this is the way we work yeah. smarter. Yep. Holden's gone, Ford's gone, Toyota's gone. They're all gone. Mm. But we still have outstanding students here in Australia who have proved themselves on the world stage this technology challenge that we've had for the f1 in cars has been running 11 years it's run out of the united states it's run also from england now the united kingdom is the um andrew denford is the founder of this program we have won four world titles in 11 years two of them are in victoria Mm, wow and so we're very proud in victoria that we're into the secondary schools we're motivating the students we're teaching them analytical skills they're learning 3d auto cad they're using adobe inventor 3d printing cad cam and to use all of these facilities to manufacture a submarine mm. which is something that's very different to a lot of teachers yeah it's very different to a lot of students so it's a very steep learning curve and when we start talking about buoyancy we start talking about acoustic signature it's all foreign language yeah now it must it must be tricky uh first of all getting across them the idea that you're converting something like an f1 vehicle to to something that can can operate in a very different environment i mean i just thinking back to certain bond films where this has been, but how, how do you how do you get that transition going in their mind i mean do you, do you have to demonstrate it to them or do you just sort of how, how does the pathway work you have to get them on mainly discovery learning we find uh, at all levels all over the world that students tell the teachers what to do so if you're a teacher yep. that has a problem with not knowing more than the student you're in trouble mm. these students will go out of their way to do the research they will go and look at the issues the human environment design they'll look at the acoustic signatures they'll look at the energy generation required they'll get use innovative um, types of approaches through collaboration they'll collaborate with 
NASA with the scientists, mm, right. Boeing, Airbus, Ferrari. So they go anywhere in the world to source the information that they need so that they can go through this process. And we have a structured program where they make a 20-page portfolio. In that 20-page portfolio, they build a scale model. The submarine will be one metre long at mm -hmm. 100 millimetres diameter. It will have to be a submersible. It will have all the electronics enclosed where we put them into a swimming pool and we test them for their buoyancy and we test them for their manoeuvrability. They also have to design inside the submarine a living situation. So what is the environment? Is it sustainable? recycling of the human waste, food, all of the processes living in a submarine must be done. It's amazing. I have to say, if, if, if a Year 7 student came and demonstrated to me they'd done all that, I'd just say, here's your high school certificate right now. Don't bother with the next five years. It's extraordinary. I can tell you, back in 2004, when the Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University, Elizabeth Harmon, invited me in to meet Reengineering Australia in this project, I was yep. so excited. Mm. And I've absolutely loved it. In my whole teaching life, there has never been a more holistic teaching program as what we have in this it's wonderful for young males and females everybody thought when we started the program this is a boys toys mm -hmm. it is absolutely not the females make brilliant engineers they make brilliant team managers because we need this sort of marketing we use the arts we use public speaking we use english so it's a totally holistic program where the students have to be involved they have to learn they have to learn to work as a team when they go out into society i don't care where they work they will need to do teamwork mm. and that's how we need to breed them for the future absolutely so joe how long does that whole program go for so if a student sort of gets involved in year seven is it a year-long process or the whole time they're in high school yes they it's a year project they will do it over 12 months but they can do it at a junior level we have a cadet level then we have a development level and then we have a professional level in the car racing one in the submarine project what we have is we have four levels they design a submersible um, remotely operated vehicle um, and that's a small one then they do a medium one so that's year seven eight year eight nine they then design a medium type remote operated vehicle year 10 they can work on the environment for the inside of the mm -hmm. submarine only and then in year 11 they actually make the full full-blown submarine model which will go under test uh, conditions for the competition it, it is an absolutely astounding program where i mean if schools and that want to get involved in this how do they find out um, the details, Joe? If they contact me on Reengineering Australia, so they go mm -hmm. to rea.org.au and I'll leave my details with you here. Mm -hmm. They can yep. contact me. Uh, I'm the Victorian State Manager and I will go to any school in Victoria, anywhere. I don't care if it's at Albury or Wodonga yep. or Hamilton. I've been all over Victoria because I'm really passionate about engaging students in this total learning package. It's the best package I've ever come in touch with. I have seen so many students. I have seen dyslexic students. I've seen students with Asperger's syndrome. One of them I took to the United States of America in 2013 and we won the world title. Awesome. So, so it's very good for disabled students. Uh, it's very good. We're also working with uh, some of the justice departments to see if we can re-engage some of the youth. Look, it's, a, it's an amazing program. Sounds uh, absolutely 
fantastic and I have to say it, it reminds us uh, all the folk um, that these new students coming through know a lot more than we did when we were their age and that they can take on these extraordinary programs so um, well done keep it up and um, if people want to uh, get that information we'll put that on the website and so forth for them um joe mcliff victorian state manager of engineering australia thanks so much for coming in thank you very much for the invite it's a pleasure we're going to take a break folks and we'll be back in just a moment with another guest we're going to be talking about materials still engineering very cool stuff three triple We're back. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. If you haven't tuned into this station before, you've picked the right one. That was The Tiger and Me with uh, Call Me On Your Own. I think I missed a... W- no. Yeah, Call Me On Your Own. <laughs> I just can't read my own handwriting. I think I mentioned that last week too. Something's going wrong. Something's going very wrong. Um, we're joined in the studio now by Adam Taylor. He's from the Centre of Microphotonics at Swinburne University. Welcome to the studio, Adam. Thanks, Dr Shane. Great to be here. Now, you're working, uh, it's interesting, uh, microphotonics, but you're working on gold. Yeah, so, so take it to the nanoscale. Yeah, so tell us, um, I mean, you know, we've known gold's been around for a while. Who cares? Why, yeah. why, are we, why are we still working on gold? Well, gold's really interesting. That They're actually taking gold nanoparticles, which are these tiny little bits of gold, about 10,000th of the width of your hair on your head, and they're putting them into, say, things like solar panels mm-hmm. and um, next-generation data storage disks, your Blu-rays, optical circuitry as well. So... We're using gold particles to really push down to this nanoscale and make some really interesting devices. Why gold? I mean, it's not cheap. No, it's not cheap, but gold has this property of being a noble metal. So, say, if you heat it up or you leave it in the oxygen, leave it in air, gold's not going to change, whereas silver, copper, the air will start to react... Um, I, 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 I'm just wondering because as I, I drove into Triple R this morning, I followed a convertible red Ferrari, and um, <laughs> as you do, and, 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 and this is related because it's not. You've already mentioned its gold particles are small, but what's special about them when they get small? Say around twenty nanometers. Yeah, when gold particles get small, you get this thing called field confinement and a thing called the surface plasmon, which means that these electric charges, these little electrons, can actually be driven, and it's almost like pushing somebody on a swing. You push them back and forward. If you have a gold particle that's really small, you can push these electrons back and forth and get a resonance. resonance. Mm. And so that resonance can allow you to have these really strong electric fields being generated. You can generate a lot of heat. And so you can do really lots of interesting things on the scale. Uh, you can, but the, the part I was getting at is mm. a 20 nanometer gold particle, if you put it in water, looks red. Yeah. And, that's... and why I mentioned that for Ferrari is... <clears throat> um, they actually put it in the paint now. Oh, do they? Oh, wow. Because yeah. it's, it's a Ferrari. It's already expensive, so it yeah, has a little bit not? of gold in the paint, and it makes the red even redder. And as an Adam mentioned, it's a noble metal, so it doesn't degrade over time, so it mm. stays red even in the sun. Yeah, even UV won't change it. Jeez, I don't drive a Ferrari. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I suspect my red car will look orange in about two years. <laughs> I hope not. Now, in, in terms of, uh, so this is, I mean, they're putting it in cars, as mm-hmm. you've heard from Dr. Ray. Um, so what, what are we learning new about these materials um, that you're working on in particular around this nanoscale? Because um, obviously when you go down to this scale, and this is not just true of gold but other materials as well, my understanding is the material property 
properties start to change. Yeah, definitely. Well, you imagine your gold car, that red colour you want in that Ferrari, that's given by the size of that uh, size of those gold particles. As they change shape, this resonance, the colour of the light they interact with, say your red colour, which these particles will scatter off the sunlight, maybe if they start to change shape, maybe, they, maybe they're slightly ellipsoidal, slightly elongated, but then in the sun, if they try and slightly reshape towards spheres, that colour may change, and all of a sudden you leave your car out in the sun, UV won't damage it, but maybe the sun might heat it up and it could change to green. And so what we actually found is that as you take these gold nanoparticles down to this nanoscale, normally gold won't melt, won't change its shape, and up to about, about 1,300 Kelvin, 30, about 1,000 degrees, you need to melt gold. What we found is on the nanoscale, they're actually changing their shape around 150 degrees. So a huge, big, taken to the nanoscale, really influences that, uh, that melting process. Is that right? I'm just wondering what I could do to a Ferrari. That <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put it out in the sun and heat it up. You are I was just evil. Thinking, I was just thinking yeah. of a Ferrari, a hairdryer, and a whole new form of graffiti. Exactly, yeah. It could go well. <laughs> I have another nerdy question. Yeah, sure. um, the the 150 degrees is fascinating to me because um, when people first started to be able to make thin gold films on a flat surface, they found if they took like a 20 nanometer gold film that they made and actually let it sit in a furnace for like 400 Celsius, so way away from the melting point mm-hmm. of gold, over time what they would see is these gold crystal islands come up out of the gold film yeah, where the gold atoms would rearrange. but. <clears throat> it must be something about time and temperature, but this sounds like it's a diff- interesting phenomena because you normally had to go to three, four hundred Celsius at least, but you said one hundred and fifty Celsius. Well, it's, it's all That's about really- <clears throat> it's all about time. So you think like those Gold Island films, four hundred degrees, you will see it maybe melt in a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. Where say these guys who are looking at um, well, the one hundred and fifty degrees reshaping, we've observed and other researchers have observed it previously that you need hours. And so it's almost like a scale. You can heat it up to maybe 500 or 400 for a couple of minutes. It'll change shape. Or uh, the lower your temperature, the longer your time needs. So it's a bit of a trade-off. But, but this, this sort of... Um, sorry, I'm trying to get my... You know, you engineers, you can talk about this all day. But, but for a simple physicist like myself, I have to get my head around the term melting point because it seems as though um, we no longer have a melting point for gold. And in fact... In this sense, you know, when, when you're talking about 150 degrees for a protracted period, for me, a melting point is where something starts melting. I don't have to leave it there for three hours for that to happen. So the definition here seems to be shifting. Exactly. Well, on the nanoscale, that sort of melting point kind of isn't really a thing you consider anymore because there's this process called surface diffusion where the atoms actually move around the surface. And you've almost got like a quasi-liquid where it can be in a solid, yet you can have a really high flux, a lot of these atoms moving around that surface. And what happens via thermodynamics, these atoms want to relax into a sphere. The sphere is the most preferable shape. It's a low energy kind of shape. Similar to like a snowflake. You get a snowflake in your hand, close your hand, but open back your hand, this complex snowflake is melted into a water droplet. That same thing is happening on a nanoscale, but these these atoms are moving from very high curved points to move around so the particle eventually goes to a sphere and relaxes. Mm. Okay. Now, I mean, this all sounds great, but then if you're using this material in what are quite a scenario where you need a very stable configuration doesn't that mean that there's a big problem with using gold as as a material and as you said solar cells and these various ferrari paint jobs <laughs> yeah definitely well that's what me and um me and the professor i work with james chon we're working on at the moment to try and find a way that we can actually give these companies who want to use these particles we can say well hey here's the kind of heat tolerances they have and you're also looking at ways to stabilize them if you put some coating over them we found mm-hmm. even a very thin couple of nanometer coating can actually 
actually stabilise them and they can be stable up to a far higher higher temperatures. Mm. And so we're looking at how what we found is the sharper these particles are, the more pointy they are, the less stable they are. Well, that kind of makes sense because I, I always have in my head, you know, if you have a, a, a bit of ice and it's a it's a perfect sphere, it's a cube. It does take longer to melt than if you have a shard of ice. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure Dr. Ray can tell me why that is. But well, <laughs> actually, what you're talking about is is more of heat transfer and surface yeah, area. Surface area. Yeah. Whereas is, is what he's talking about is um, the uh, surface area for a surface diffusion might have a different role for a different geometry. Hello. So it, it's not always necessarily heat transfer. <laughs> My mind is still just on ice in drinks, really. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. So, so what's next in terms of, of this project? Because obviously this this information around the this weird behavior of, of gold, and I, I guess I have to ask the question, is it the only metal that actually behaves this way on the nanoscale, or is this something we should find everywhere? No, it's basically surface diffusion is a property that should exist everywhere. Like mm. Gold has just been the, the low-hanging fruit that we can that we can work with we have gold particles we can make them in all interesting shapes and we can test them out but where we want to take this is to these device manufacturers who are making these say in the solar panel you put these really pointy structures little nano features on a solar panel and acts as these little magnifying glasses that concentrate the light the sunlight into these panels and you think all right well i've got this i can pay a little premium and i'll get a more enhanced solar panel but you put it up in the up in the sun thinking that it won't reshape until about maybe a thousand degrees and you realize along period of hot days maybe it heats up long amount of time and then it actually will reshape so we're actually being able to go to panel manufacturers and also and say well these we can model what you give us and we can do it experimentally mm. we can build it make our simulation which we pro- which are programmed see that they match and we can go back to them go well here here's what's happening and here's ways we can maybe mitigate that I have to say, for a moment there, I was getting worried because I just chucked a whole of the solar panels on my roof, and they yeah. I can tell you they don't have gold in them. <laughs> Although, exactly. given the price tag, it feels like they should. Yeah, yeah. maybe in ten years they might. In ten years yeah. they might. Look, Adam, it's it's really interesting stuff, and uh, any of that uh, work around how these these common known materials have a very different uh, structure, and it's it's almost like we have a whole different periodic table that we're we're getting to play with now of materials mm. that have new. You know, if you think back to when the periodic table was first being put together, and it was based on certain features um, like melting yeah. temperature and others and now all of a sudden these exact same materials with different scale lengths and so forth have um, have very different set of features yeah definitely i'm imagining this three-dimensional periodic table is going to have to come out soon with an extra cool. an extra extra set of stuff dr ray oh you just said something and i think you so undersold something you achieved you said you could simulate or model what's going to happen how it interacts with light before you ever made it or measured it. How do you do that? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a lot of programming I have to teach myself and a lot of, a lot of maths, but it's the idea that we can actually build the simulation package because there are, there are theories that describe how... A our shape will change under surface diffusion. So you can actually take these take these equations and apply them to a 3D shape. So by doing some complex differential equations and some crazy maths I won't go into to scare the listeners, but you can actually model this. And so I can make my this program that will actually I can put in a shape with a certain set of parameters and uh, run the simulation, and then I can... Also take these nanoparticles, put them in an oven or in a really cool heated stage microscope, t- electron microscope, we can watch in real time as these particles change shape. And I can actually look and compare that to my simulation. So it's just a matter of sort of following some these equations back from the 60s but applying it to the nanoscale. And we mm. find that it actually still works on... from mi- They were designed for micro, but they work on nano. Very cool stuff. Adam Taylor from the Centre for Microphotonics at Swinburne University, thanks so much for chatting to us. Yeah, thank you.
<laughs> now uh, we're almost out of time, folks. We've uh, got about a minute to go, and then uh, it's uh, curtains for us, I'm afraid. And time to enjoy <laughs> the sunshine. I know. Well, I'm going to have lunch with Dr. Ray. Are we still on, buddy? Yes. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Because uh, I'm on uh, JVG Radio Method later today. Awesome. There's a segment called Full of Shit, <laughs> and I think I'm uniquely qualified to be part of that <laughs> for John. Um, I can so give we'll some suggestions at lunch. Yeah, I'm sure you will. There's no doubt that will happen. So uh, in a moment, folks, we're going to hand you over to Matt Stebbin and the team from Eat It. Uh, good old Matt Stebbin launched one of those Fitbit step challenges, those work week challenges, and he invited me this week. And can I just say, Matt Stebbin, I kicked your butt, pal. <laughs> I'm not even convinced he was walking during the week. I think he attached it to his dog. But uh, anyway, we'll see how he goes. Uh, you've been listening to Science here on Einstein and Gogo, and that's something that uh, has been in the news a lot lately as we find that uh, governments are giving small amounts of funding and small time frames for our infrastructure projects. But uh, we'll take the small wins, but I have to say to all the scientists and supporters of science out there, do not stop so- uh, fighting this issue because of small trinkets or crumbs that we are handed. This has to be an ongoing and uh, big fight that we're in to improve the lot for science and research throughout this country. So um, I'm going to get off the high horse now and uh, hand over to the team from Edith. You've been listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. Thanks so much for your company. We will speak to you again next week. Remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.